and welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, the Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist. I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. I appreciate your support, and I appreciate you tuning in to this podcast, Tuesday In and Tuesday Out. Today's podcast is really about rare diseases and the research that we could do on rare diseases. And no one is better than Dr. Naveen Pimaraju from MD Anderson to join me on today's podcast to discuss how do researchers approach the investigation of rare disorders? What is the definition of a rare disease or orphan disease and how do we really approach that? Dr. Pimaraju is currently at MD Anderson Cancer Center. He is going to provide a brief uh, background on what he is doing and, and what he has been doing. But interestingly, he really did a lot of work on a disease called blastic plasmacytoid dendritic cell neoplasm, or BPDCN. And I jokingly tell Naveen all the time, I have no clue how to memorize the nomenclature of this disease. So we're just calling, calling it the Naveen disorder or the PEM disease. So you'll have some fun with that. Look, it's really important to know how to investigate rare diseases because no matter how rare the disease is, for that one individual who has the actual disease, it is not rare. It is a life-defining illness. It is an illness that's going to affect how this individual is going to live his or her life, investigating therapies, investigating diagnostics, and again, what could be done about this. So uh, I'm really excited about this. I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. And as always, I'd like to hear from you. So you can always direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. You can visit my website, shadinabhan.com and send me an email there. Don't forget to uh, rate the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to the YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Always open the lines of communication. And if you really want any of the famous podcast t-shirts, make sure you reach out to me and I promise I will send you a free t-shirt for supporting the podcast and being an active listener. Without further ado, Dr. Naveen Pimaraju on Healthcare Unfiltered Podcast. Well, uh, here he is, Dr. Naveen Pimaraju, uh, first time on Healthcare Unfiltered. I am deeply uh, flattered and, 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 and honored that uh, he is joining us today um, for context because uh, we don't air this live. And I have to say that because things do change with time. We are taping this uh, towards the end of 2021, about a week or so after the American Society of Hematology meeting. Judging from the schedule, we had uh, our schedule, Naveen was derailed a little bit. This might be airing towards the middle uh, or towards the end of February, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. But uh, look, um, we want to start by getting to know you a little bit. Uh, so Naveen Pemaraju, tell us a little bit about you. How did you end up at MD Anderson and um, what inspired you to become a hematologist and oncologist? Well, Shadi, thank you so much to you and for your friendship and guidance throughout the years. Um, I'm a big fan of your work, including this podcast and the 
absolutely gems of uh, breathtaking interviews you've done, in-depth analysis. So it's an honor for me to be here, uh, my friend. Thank you. Um, I think my journey really begins uh, the moment that I started internship at Johns Hopkins Hospital. So I was an Oslarian there way back in 2005 on the Barker firm. And uh, Shadi, it was there that I really learned truly what it meant to become not only a doctor, but kind of an adult, I think is what I tell people at that time. Uh, my wife and I were, were quite young at that time. We had our first uh, child while I was there. So that was a very special time in my life. And it made me into the doctor I am now. So that was 05 to 08. And then I've been at MD Anderson since then, uh, chief fellow there in the 08 to 2011, and then stayed on for assistant uh, to associate. I think the moment I knew I was going to be a hematologist was very young. Uh, my father and my brother both ended up being pathologists. And so there must be this common love affair of the blood smear, of the internal workings of the body. And my father used to take me into the hospital to look at the microscope. And what I gravitated towards was not just the smears, but the stories behind the smears, I guess. So who are these patients? Who were these husbands and wives, sisters and brothers who had these uh, sometimes esoteric, sometimes uncommon uh, diseases. Um, and, you know, what, what is it that would work to treat them, to make them better? I wanted to be that doctor. So this was a very early age. And then, of course, as you well know, guidance, mentorship, pre-med, medical school internship, you have to be, you know, shifted and molded in that direction and, and identify. And when I got to Johns Hopkins, uh, Alison Moliterno and Jerry Spivak there were the first two people that I met in my life that shared the same unbridled love and passion for hematology. You know, it's, um, it's interesting. You say there's a looking at thinking of the human, of the human story behind the slide. It's really uh, well put. I really appreciate that because there's, um, you know, there's a lot of stories and um, once you are hit by an illness, your entire life could be derailed. Right. Right. It gives you a lot of appreciation perspective. So um, so you've been at MD Anderson for 10 years? Yeah, exactly 10 years. That's right. 10 years. And what's your role at MD Anderson? Um, what, like, How do you spend your time, I guess, uh, divide between, do you do lab, just research, inpatient, outpatient? What's, your, what's the pie chart of Dr. Pimaraju? Yeah, you know, that's an excellent question. And it's something that I would encourage all trainees and medical students to ask their attendings, because really, unless you ask that, you won't have a sense. So for me, um, my uh, kind of weekly schedule, Shadi, is, so I would say about 60% clinical. I round on the leukemia inpatient service, you know, anywhere from two to three months a year. And I have uh, four half days, what ends up being two full days of clinic where I see patients um, in, in the uh, heme leukemia clinic. Uh, and then the rest of the time dedicated to research, administrative teaching duties. I would say one uh, unique aspect of what I do, uh, as you well know, is I've been recently appointed as the director of our program for blastic plasmacytoid dendritic cell neoplasm, or BPDCN. So I spend the majority of my time thinking about writing, researching about rare, maybe ultra rare diseases and blood cancers, including BPDCN, and also patients with MPNs and acute leukemias. And, uh, you know, the reason I brought you on is we're going to talk about rare diseases. So you're the perfect uh, guest for the topic. Um, 
I have a lot of questions about this, and we'll talk about this uh, B, P, C, D, N, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, <laughs> that, uh, disease that you, we're going to talk about a little bit. Um, because, you know, I'm going to take a wild guess, Naveen. When you started MD Anderson, you did not think you're going to spend your career on B, P, C, D, N. That, I mean, that's exactly right. I think, okay. <laughs> I think one of the great things about what we do is, you know, we're all magicians who know each other's tricks, right? So, you know, you go into, uh, you want to be a doctor, I think, first. That was the first thing for me, as I told you. Then which type of doctor, a surgeon or a medicine doctor, then heme, then heme, then malignant heme, then leukemia, then rare diseases, right? But I, I definitely have to give a shout out to, for me in particular, it was me mentorship, right? You have these doctors and researchers. It's not that you idolize them, but it's that you picture you want to be like them one day or do what they do for a living. And so I think you really hit it on the money that if you're open to new ideas, new opportunities, if you're open to developing that research niche area, not just for yourself, yes, you have to do it for career development, but something that causes spark of inspiration and passion, then it doesn't matter what, what it is you do, whether it's something rare or common, do you have that life spark passion to go for it? And you're right, this is what I ended up finding and, and it's been, uh, one awesome journey thus far. We're going to talk about how you end up doing a lot of this research on it, and, and you, you published on it uh, a lot, including the New England Journal of Medicine, obviously. But, but before we get there, let's just back up a little bit and talk on about rare diseases. I mean, how, I know, rare disease, orphan diseases, uh, there's obviously a policy definition by, I believe, by right. the regulatory bodies on that. But uh, how do you define rare diseases or orphan diseases? Uh, and I presume they're not really restricted to oncology or hematology. Right, Shadi. I mean, this is exactly right. I love that you referenced, there are these technical definitions that many of us in the field often don't know or don't use. You know, there'll be classic ones such as from NCI, NIH, governing bodies, FDA even, you know, whether it's 15 patients per 100,000, whatever these definitions are, you know, a couple out of a million patients, but, you know, we all know, we all know it when we see it. I think that you make two important points here. One is that there are rare diseases outside of our hemonc worlds that are not only ultra rare diseases that may only affect less than 100 to 500 people, but they have yielded unbelievable breakthroughs that then can be used uh, in other fields. So I think that's actually very important what you brought up. And then of course, in our hemong field, sure, you know, you have Castleman's disease, Rosite Dorfman, Erdheim Chester, BPDCN, all of these diseases, which may constitute only one question a year on a hemong board exam, and yet affect anywhere from 50 to 1000 people a year. And in the case of APL, acute promyelocytic leukemia or hairy cell leukemia, these have been paradigms for curing actually deadly uh, diseases and leukemias and then extrapolating them uh, to others. So I love your point that yes, a rare disease, we know it when we see it, can be a, a cancer, can be a non-cancer. But is the definition 15 per 100,000 or is, does, it, is right. it, does it change? Well, it's, it's changing over time. You know, So that's the technical definition that you can use when you're reviewing protocols or uh, journal entries, uh, or even uh, regulatory drug process. So I think that's a good benchmark. But I think the broader point is, these are diseases that don't always belong in one category or the other. 
These are the diseases that change, you know, WHO categories over time, BPD-10 being the classic. It used to be classified as a lymphoid disease, then as a myeloid. Now in the latest, it's, it's basically its own thing. Um, and then I think also the concept that the general hematologist oncologist, whether in training or in the professional community setting, has either never heard of the disease, never taken care of a patient, or even after looking it up, you know, still has no idea about the treatment history and paradigm. So I think that's the modern understanding, especially with information being so readily available now. So it's just, it's a very interesting evolving situation where you can have a common disease and have a rare subset, have a completely new emerging entity. So such as this Vexus syndrome that's come up or a BPDCN, which has actually been around for decades, but the name has changed so many times and it's kind of a hard diagnosis to make long name. Um, that can be the definition of rarity as well. So, but, but is there, you mentioned about drug approvals. So mm. if there's a specific pathway, and I know, I yeah. assume you're not really in policy research, but is there a specific pathway? If I have a drug that yes. targets a rare disease, do I have a special treatment as a manufacturer? Yes, this is actually a very important point, And I only know that because of what I do for a living. There is, and I really would praise the US FDA in particular, and the regulatory agencies um, in the European Union as well, uh, which are the two that I'm familiar with, absolutely there is so-called rare disease or orphan drug pathway. What, what it allows um, companies, sponsors, investigators to do is exactly what you said. Once the declaration of the rare disease is made and verified, then there can be sort of a separate or emphasis pathway on that. You know, Obviously it's gonna have smaller numbers of patients, uh, clinical trial designs may be different. Possibly there's some involvement from the regulatory bodies early and often to guide the rare disease drug development pathway, particularly if it's a first in class. So I think what you what I've seen over the last 10 years is an awesome emphasis on this and a pathway um, and an ability for drugs to get approved for these very, very small numbers of patients faster than the regular pathway and so on. Oftentimes, sure, either through accelerated or regular, depending on the circumstance, possibly yes. Mm -hmm. So, 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 okay, maybe this is, and if it's a provocative question, but I'm pretty sure it's a question that is on the minds of, of listeners, because as you and I know, when you look at hematological disorders and oncological disorders, we have so much subclassification that is, you know, that changes, that be, almost becomes everything is rare. I mean, as you know, I've right. done a lot of work in lymphoma and CLL, and all mm -hmm. of a sudden, I mean, Hodgkin, if you start dividing right, Hodgkin into, you know, nodular lymphocyte predominant disease, and uh, each one, uh, classical versus non-classical, uh, could become rare. Um, lymphomas, double hit lymphoma. Mm. be a rare disease because now you need to look at the MYC and BCL2 or BCL2 translocations and it becomes rare. Even let's do solid tumors. You could look at breast cancer and you say triple negative breast right. cancer. I mean, the research in oncology and hematology is no longer, at least I, you know, it's really migrating away from the broader disease and starting to look at subsets of diseases right. within the large umbrella. So I don't know, the cynical in me, I guess, or the skeptical in me, or maybe not cynical, I think is better. Uh, <laughs> suddenly all cancers are gonna become rare. 
Oh, this resonates with me very much. I, this may be the same for you as it is for me. One of the most common questions I get at uh, social gatherings, dinner parties, you know, especially prior to the pandemic was- Prior to the pandemic, you know, we don't want to, otherwise you'll get canceled, Naveen. You're going <laughs> to hear that they'll cancel you and trying to preserve you. <laughs> yeah, and, and you're right. The, the, the social- Yeah, don't social cancel the Naveen. Of change. Don't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, at these social gatherings prior to the pandemic, um, one of the most common questions is exactly what you said. Hey, when are you guys going to find the cure for cancer? And you know, you know, you've, you've been given this question as well. This is actually what you just said. You're the first person I've ever heard to really say this so nicely. That's my answer, is that there may not be one cure for cancer, as we all know. My goodness, even within heme and, and solid, as you nicely delineated, there's so many subtypes. And look at AML from the time you know, your lymphoid expertise at U of Chicago when you're on faculty in just these few years, if you, if we look at the WHO from 10 years ago to now, unbelievable amount of subsets. So I think that what you said is important for three reasons. One is that, yes, I do envision the field moving even more so um, where classic diseases, like you said, like a Hodgkin's are further divided, not only to molecular subtypes, but immune subtypes. And then even a combination of all these so that we move away from necessarily heme or solid or name diseases, but, but pathway-driven diseases, right? I think that's important. Number two, the development of the field to target those diseases, which, which is a passion of yours, this so-called targeted or precision oncology, which we're already seeing in our midst. And then number three, number three is no matter how rare or common a disease, and I love your example of breast cancer, which perhaps maybe a quarter of a million people a year diagnosed in the United States. But once you parse out the subsets, triple negative, HER2, ER, PR positive, maybe each subset only has 10 to 100,000 people. And now then you can actually have a guided surveillance programs for that subset that may not apply to the other cancer prevention, screening, genetic analysis, so on. So again, to emphasize what you just said to me, there may not be such a thing as rare or common anymore the further we go with sequencing, immune uh, subdividing. And at the end of the day, Shadi, what you're, what you're saying was close to my heart, which is it doesn't matter if a disease is rare or common. It's your disease. It's your family's disease. It's your mother's disease, your father, you and your family are facing. So if it's N of 10 or N of 250,000, what you're looking for is the personalized guided therapy for what you have. Yeah. I think the biggest concern I have is the regulatory um, implication, because once you have almost every disease as a rare disease, the barriers to entry for drugs that get approved um, are really much lower, right? Because for right. the accelerated pathway and for rare diseases, the barriers are much lower because the FDA allows this quote-unquote unmet medical need for the rare diseases. So as a manufacturer, you get into the market faster. And I worry it's good because you get access, but anytime you lower the barriers, I think the scrutiny in terms of regulatory is not as robust. And, 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 and you know, I think the FDA needs to really worry about that or make sure they put some guardrails. That, that's really my concern. My concern is if we start putting numbers on these diseases, then suddenly everything becomes, and especially in the precision oncology, like you said, market, like all of a sudden, are we, let's, let's try, are we going to get to a point where we say, this is, um, you know, the MIC positive 
cancers, regardless of histology. Right. Precisely. You know, I mean, is that, you think we're heading that way with precision oncology? Yeah. Gosh, yeah, this is a very provocative discussion because I really do. We're, you and I are starting to see the beginnings of this that you're hypothesizing in some of the uh, recent FDA approvals. I think the NTREC, NTREC fusion um, uh, approval is one, perhaps the KRAS story, perhaps some of these uh, immune-based uh, approvals are starting to be what's called tissue agnostic, which is exactly what you're talking about, pathway-driven. You have also this field of carcinoma of the unknown primary that we've all had patients with where you don't quite know where the histology is. And in fact, identification of the molecular or immune uh, landscape allows you, maybe you may not be able to identify the name of the parent tumor, but wow, we have this pathway ready to go. And then it sets the stage for CAR-T therapy and immune therapy, where maybe we don't even need to know the tumor of origin or the pathway, but we have a potential curative approach, particularly uh, in the lymphoid diseases as of now. So very, very provocative. And yes, I do see our field moving that way in the next decade. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I you know, it's, it will be interesting to see. I, you, you know, you just made me think about something I may write about the definition of orphan diseases. We'll see. Excellent. But uh, let's talk about uh, BPCDN or what people on social media call it the Pema Raju disease. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, you've arrived when people are not, you know, you've arrived and people don't know what the disease, they just associate the disease with you. That's, I don't right. know. Look, this is the time to retire. I'm Naveen, it's going right. to down him from there. I doesn't mean, get any better than that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what you're going to do. It's, I don't know what's going to happen after this. But uh, maybe, maybe I think a lot of trainees and fellows might be very interested with this story because, um, you know, you and I know, um, you know, in fellowship, you probably never heard of this disease. Um, right. Just the way it is. How did this come about? How did you get involved in the research of this disease? Take us through the journey that led mm. to, uh, you know, drugs approved for this disease eventually. Mm, such a great question, Shadi. Yeah, so everything you said is, as usual, right on the money. So residency and fellowship, knew I wanted to do hematology, malignant hematology, thinking about the common, the more common areas, MPNs and acute leukemias, which are, of course, still rare in many cases. It wasn't until the end of fellowship, early first year of faculty, um, where I had two patients, both younger, actually, it's usually a disease of 65, 70, who both, despite uh, optimal multi-agent chemotherapy regimens, passed away very early within a year, which was the historical expectation at the time, something like eight to 14 months. And these patients had great therapy at academic centers with all the latest multi-agent chemotherapy, et cetera, et cetera. Leukemia? So presented, they had acute leukemia? So, so both of them had BPDCN, and as you said, they, trans, they transformed to acute leukemia and died shortly after that, exactly. So for listeners, but tell them what BPCDN is. because Yes, I right, right. So that's the first time I came across the disease. So this is now 2010, let's say, at the end of the fellowship. So blastic plasmacytoid dendritic cell neoplasm. The B, of course, blastic, meaning these immature cells. Uh, plasmacytoid dendritic cell PDC, that's going to be the eventual cell of origin, which we did not know back then yet. And then neoplasm, of course, cancer. So a cancer of bone marrow blood cells. But what was odd at that time, Shadi, is that most of these patients would have skin lesions, dramatic skin lesions, purple colored, dark colored, all over the body. 
kind of setting it apart from almost every other leukemia. So that was one thing. The second thing is uh, half the patients would have bone marrow blood involvement, like our lymphoma leukemias that we're used to. And then third, very importantly, was lymph node involvement. Hmm. So skin, bone marrow, blood, lymph node, this sounds like a hybrid of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, acute leukemia, and even other lymphomas, all of this presenting in one patient, oftentimes at the same time, oftentimes subsequently. So you're right. So that was about 0910. And then um, the, the concept is this kind of nice story, which, which uh, I'd love to share with people, which is presented it to my group and our great mentor and chairman, Dr. Contarjan, who's always been very supportive. And you know, like you would imagine, he said, hey, we don't have any standard therapies. Why don't you take that up as your, um, you know, your area, your research and, and, and circle back to it. So started to look in the database. At that time, there were only less than, I mean, less than 10 patients. They were oftentimes shoddy referred to either lymphoma, phase one, dermatology, maybe even given skin directed therapies for these skin lesions. But the uniform was that they all died very early uh, within one to two years. So that's part one. Part two is how do you um, stake your claim in something when there's not very much known? And by the way, the name was only formalized in 08. It had been known as blastic NK cell lymphoma, as you know, CD4 positive, CD56 positive hematodermic tumor. So just this panoply of names that further confused, then the diagnosis was difficult, and then it's rare on top of that. Okay, so now part two is I've declared to everyone, I'm, this is what I'm going to do. So how do you go about doing that? Wow. That was, that was not easy. That was challenging. I do want to give two shout outs here. At that time, Shadi, there was a, a great uh, collaborator of mine, Dr. Art Frankel, and his name should be said uh, in this context. He was working on a drug at that time. He combined the diphtheria toxin to human IL-3. And he uh, said, let's treat patients with MDS and AML. But this combination hits this receptor called CD123, a surface receptor. And so his vision was, why don't we include these rare patients with BPDCN? He himself had some, I had many, uh, several other collaborators. So the trial went on for all three. Um, the AML-MDS was modest results at that time, but the real signal was with our BPDCN patients where the skin lesions started to clear up, oftentimes within the first week. Um, the toxicity was there, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, in a moment, which caused some fluid buildup in the heart and lungs called vascular or capillary leak. And then at that time, there was only one cycle of therapy available. So we did that for about three years, Shadi, and then we were able to publish that in Blood in 2014 with a nice editorial from Dr. Fitzgerald from the NIH, which said, wow, this is a promising field and a promising therapy, um, and it puts in a drug possibly to, to a rare disease field. So the CD123 sort of discovery that it was 100% ubiquitous overexpression on the surface of BPDCN, the development of a drug by an investigator, and then it leads to part three, which you nicely introed there. So now uh, the company uh, which got involved at this point that was known as Stemline, uh, which I and others have worked closely with over the last decade, they acquired this uh, agent uh, now known as SL401 or TAG or Tegraxafos, and we set out to do the first ever sort of prospective, multi-center, multi-cycle, proper phase one, two trial of this novel agent hitting 123, CD123. And then, as you said, the rest is history. We were able to do that trial over about five years. And we actually, interestingly, we thought that the majority of patients, at least I did, would be relapsed refractory. So patients having at least one prior therapy in the community, but it was the reverse. 
people heard about this drug either through social media or online, self-referred or the doctors referred, the majority of patients were frontline. We showed a 90% at that time overall response rate in the frontline setting, 60 plus percent in the relapse setting. Wow. And a lot of these patients, even though they were older, Shadi, they were able to go to stem cell transplant and then that got published in New England Journal. And then the drug was approved in the US exactly three years ago to the day of this recording in December of 2018. Um, so, so to turn it over to you, that's the kind of three part story is identify a need in your clinic, in your patients, develop a focus and a passion, no matter what. And then I would say number three is be involved in all of the studies uh, in your field, whether it's in the lab, in the clinic, writing review articles, writing case reports, writing database reviews, whatever you can do to both expand the field, but also to let people know this is what you're working on. This is great, really great story. So what's the name of the drug for listeners? Right. So the name of the drug, the first and only approved BPDCN drug in CD123 is known as SL401 or Tagraxifus, or for short TAG. And this is with the Stemline Therapeutics Company. And now it's a, exploded into a new field, CD123 targeting, as you know, in all of lymphoid and, and myeloid malignancies with a host of other CD123 targeted agents in phase one uh, through two testing. So Stemline then got bought by Blueprint or... No, so Stemline is, is its own company. So the other rare diseases that you and I have talked about before, right? So Blueprint, that's the one with the KID inhibitor uh, in systemic mastocytosis, uh, so on and so forth. So you're right. This, this topic is that there's a multitude of companies now either going for KIT, CD123, or some of these other targets in these rare and ultra rare diseases. So you published this, you told us about the... Uh, Tell us about the results that were published in the New England Journal of Medicine, oh, sure. particularly maybe the uh, duration of response and survival and so on, because uh, I think that's really important. It's going to lead into the next question I have in mind. Oh, excellent. Yeah, I think the most important things from the New England Journal paper, so that was April 2019, which I had the honor of, of leading and being the first author, along with my Congrats. colleagues. This was, this was really amazing. It's just, uh, um, it, it yeah, couldn't man. have happened to a better person, truly. Wow. So, what yeah. a nice thing to say to someone. Uh, that means the world to me. Thank you very much. And, and as you know, you know, also have to say, you know, we both know as investigators in the field, it's a team effort. Um, Really a lot of shout out to my two mentors at Anderson, right? Dr. Kantarajan, Dr. Marina Konopleva, her name should be mentioned here. And then Dr. Andy Lane at Dana-Farber. So, you know, with this team approach, we got it into New England Journal. The, the most important results are, um, you know, 45, uh, so let, let, just, just under 50 patients were treated, a mix of frontline and relapse refractory, but mostly frontline, 90%, 90% overall response rate, but that includes PR. So the CR rate, complete remission, was a very respectable 72%, which also included patients who achieved a CR but maybe had some unclear microscopic disease. That's called a CRC. And 45% of those frontline patients, that's 29 patients, were able to go to a stem cell transplant with a median age of 65 or over. In the relapse setting, it should be mentioned also that the results uh, were uh, markedly less because these are now patients who've had at least one prior therapy. So there, the response rate was about 60, 67%, but the overall survival was only about eight and a half months there. In the frontline setting, we, what appears to be we doubled the historical, doubled or tripled the historical expectation. So I think the concept here was that in the frontline setting, 
extremely respectable results, which then went on to be approved in the EU EMA for frontline BPDCN. But in the relapse refractory setting, Shavi, I think the conclusion that I and others have is that still more work needs to be done. So we're investigating other CD123 agents, combinations. The duration and overall survival may not be there in the relapse setting. This is still a very aggressive, deadly disease. So the duration of response in frontline was, um, is there a median duration of response? The 70% plus with CR? Yeah, right. So correct. So you can, so what you can say is among patients who are stem cell transplanted, because that's where the longest term follow-up is. Those were the, the fit patients. You're right. So actually, this is actually perfect timing. I just presented this at ASH. So these data are public. So at ASH, I showed the one-year and two-year survival probability. I think that's exactly what you're asking. Now, these are patients who are CR transplant. was very high. It was 60% plus. So the supposition is that if you are able to get to a CR stem cell transplant, your one, two-year survival probability is, is very, very high. But for the patients who are not, so older patients, those who are unfit, I think this is exactly what you're saying, those survival probabilities were, were not very high. And I think the supposition there is that you have two different groups of patients, the younger fit patients and then the older unfit. So this is the type of drug that is a bridge to transplant for transplant eligible patients because the response rate is not going to last for long. If you are transplant ineligible, your response duration is measured in months, pretty much it looks like, right? I mean- Yeah, I want to emphasize what you said because in this disease, BPDCN, even with this drug and CD123 and all this uh, excitement, still you have to say exactly what you said, which is- allogeneic stem cell transplant in CR1 is still part of the mainstay standard of care period. There are some patients who we put forward for auto transplant. You, you, you'll be very interested to know that with your lymphoid expertise. Usually those were older unfit patients, maybe skin only disease, but, but the field is still moving back towards aloe. And then the second point you said is important, which is in the first remission. As we know in these acute leukemias, oftentimes CR2 may never come even if you get to CR2, the patient may not be in a good enough shape. So I think future directions will be combination therapies, central nervous system therapy to maybe try to eliminate stem cell transplant, but you cannot yet. That's correct. That 45% of our frontline patients on the New England Journal went to, out, uh, went to transplant. That's right. Yeah, obviously the reason I ask is because philosophically, I wonder, I mean, you know, like th this was a phase two study Right, correct. Uh, obviously published in the most prestigious journal in the world, uh, arguably, uh, and then it did lead to a drug approval. Now, was there was there was a drug approved contingent on additional studies that the that you were supposed to do? Was this like an accelerated approval, and there was post marketing studies that were supposed to be done um, after? Oh, good question. Yeah, no, th this was a regular full approval, so it was not the accelerated approval, which is as you're nicely mentioning, which would require that. So now the future directions, you know, three years post approval, I would say are threefold. One is the other CD one twenty three drugs, you know. So we have the IMGN six three two, which is in furthest development. That's as a monotherapy number two approach is combination with the SL-401. So we have multiple studies there, Shadi and triplet. So the SL-401 with Venaza as a triplet and then SL-401 with hyper-CVAD chemotherapy and Ven as a triplet. And then the third kind of new approach, I guess, outside of CD-123 is HMA-Ven 
especially in the older unfit patients with BPDCN. So I think that's kind of the, the next three years for the field. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's a lot of times where, you know, folks, for example, might say, well, you know, you should not give a regular approval based on a phase two study. It should be compared to something, especially in the front line. I think the trial had some patients in the front line and some patients with uh, relapse disease. What's your sense of that? I mean, you know, is it fair to say that you should have had the comparator arm to demonstrate that the drug even better than, I don't know, seven and three or whatever? Right, right. I think it's a very important point. And of course I am, this is something very important to me personally. I think, you know, since I've dedicated my life to these rare diseases, the one thing I can say to the listeners out there shouting and to our investigators it's very difficult to find these patients with these rare diseases. We estimate the incidence of BPDCN, possibly 500, maybe up to 1,000 patients a year in the US, maybe about the same number in the EU. And then for patients to be able to be referred to the academic centers, et cetera, et cetera, as you know, and qualify for the study, very small numbers. So I think if you have an ultra rare disease such as BPDCN, very rare, um, I think in this case, it's, it's completely okay to go for, in this case, it was a very well-designed uh, stage one, two, three, and then a four. There was a continued access stage with uh, regulatory oversight throughout and then a nice historical comparison because we have the, the field uh, comparison there. I think in the more common diseases or less rare diseases, absolutely, as you know, I favor you know uh, these important trial designs where you have a built-in control, built-in comparative. The other problem I will say in BPDCN there was no standard of care approach when we when we first got into this. People were doing a variety of therapies. So even if you had a best available therapy or control arm, I'm not sure what we would have done back then. I think the last point also is in a disease that affects multiple disease compartments, as this BPDCN does, there were no response criteria. In fact, we had to put those forward and is now an accepted part of the field, which is basically an amalgamation of skin, uh, MSWAT score from cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, uh, Chesin criteria for lymphoma imaging, and then AML criteria for bone marrow. So to your point, we had to find the patients, do the trial, have some uh, response criteria that was prospectively agreed to. So I think the question will be an open one for the field, but I, um, it's difficult to build in a control or a comparator arm in these ultra rare diseases when you don't always know what that arm should be or have the patient volumes for it. Yeah, like before the drug, would you have given regular acute leukemia therapy? Right. Yeah. So before the drug, so the trial started seven or eight years ago. So yeah. So let's go back to 2010. Let's say those two patients that I was telling you about. The uh, two most common approaches have been ALL-based chemotherapy. So either hyper-CVAD contorogen regimen or whatever ALL regimen your institution uses, and then dropping the doses, uh, you know, for older patients, or as you said, AML-based regimen. So the seven and three most commonly used worldwide. There is a third approach, which is the CHOP-based or lymphoma-based regimens, particularly uh, in some of the older patients. So that was the most common approach. Now, worldwide, right, the CD123 drug is only available here and in Europe. So for the rest of the world where I get calls and, and, and emails, those drugs are not available or the patient may not qualify anyway for that. And so there you still have chemotherapy, you have people using HMA VEN, and we've published on all of these uh, as well, and especially in the older unfit BPDCN patient. 
You know, the clinical trialist purist may say you put investigator's choice, but I, I know, I mean, I know, uh, you know, it's, it's such an ultra rare disease where right. you target to it, um, you know, you could make an argument maybe in the older patient population that cannot get into a transplant. Maybe it's, it's a philosophical question, but I can right. envision folks saying, well, you know, it's a, you should do investigator's choice because there was an era before the disease was, was right. before the drug was there. But um, in terms of the two things, in terms of the drug itself, uh, how well tolerated it is, because obviously I presume it's, gonna, it's very expensive. And number two, um, well, let's, let, let, let's start there in terms of um, how well tolerated the drug is and so on. Yeah, very important. So as we know, Shadi, with these new drugs, you have to look out for new toxicities, particularly first-in-class drugs. And we certainly found that with the Tagraxifusp tag SO4O1 agent. So as predicted in that pilot study I described to you that we did with Frankel in 2014, we expected and hypothesized a vascular leak or capillary leak syndrome, maybe for different reasons, uh, but that, that was part and parcel with the drug. So there were, no, um, there were no grade five death events in the pilot study, but in the uh, pivotal studies, we did see um, a couple of deaths related to the capillary leak syndrome. And I wanna describe what that is because many are not familiar. Capillary leak syndrome is common in um, uh, multiple different drug agents, either cytotoxic or targeted, sometimes in these bacterial conjugated toxins and even disease processes. So it looks like it tracks with albumin. So the lower the albumin or the, the faster the kinetic drop, then it looks like a patient may have this syndrome. And especially in an older patient, cardiac insufficiency, cardiopulmonary insufficiency could actually lead to death. So that was observed on the study. We quickly modified to have a screening for albumin. So you had to have albumin of 3.2 or higher. You had to have sufficient cardiovascular reserve just by the usual parameters in most clinical trials. Um, and then if the capillary leak syndrome developed, it needed to be recognized early and treated with albumin, Lasix, diuresis, steroids, et cetera. So with that, it was found to be very manageable, but appropriately so. Appropriately, it does carry a US FDA black box warning. So this is something that in the community setting, as it's now being rolled out, providers must know about beforehand, patients must be educated, Anyone can call me anytime if they want to. And then in our paper, we discuss this as well. Which really is a, is a natural fit for the next question, because, um, you know, not obviously every site is going to have the same resource and expertise, right. MD Anderson. So how easy to make that diagnosis broaden mm. the community? Because frankly, you know, you, you can agree with me that sometimes the incidence of the disease is contingent whether you can diagnose it or not, right? I mean, if you right. don't know how to diagnose it, um, yeah, I'm sure it's rare, but, you know, it could be 2,000 cases versus 1,000 cases, who knows? So how easy it is it to diagnose this disease in the community as well as, frankly, other academic sites that are not MD Anderson that have not seen the number of cases you, you've had? Um, how is it like the intersection between what you do and the pathologist does to make the diagnosis? Yes, critical, critical point. I'm so happy you brought that up here. Yes to everything you said. Let's go through it. So, you know, I, I think about a lot about the Field of Dreams movie with Kevin Costner. If you build it, they will come. This is exactly right. Yeah. And we've seen this, you and I, in our, in our careers where you have a rare entity, rare disease, but then now you have one or two drug approvals, you have an NCCN guidelines, 
you have some awareness or something, and then, and then now you have a treatment pathway. We're starting to see that in BPDTN. So first point you made, very challenging diagnosis, period, whether in an academic center or a community setting. Three reasons for that. One is the name has changed a bunch of times, probably six times over the last 40 years. So that makes it tough. Two is the diagnostic pathway, if you will, has not been standardized uh, until now, I would argue. And then three is that there are other mimicking conditions. Well, let's go through that. Well, if you're in a community practice, you have a patient with a leukemia lymphoma process in skin, Shadi, you and I know most commonly that's going to be either cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, AML leukemia with leukemia cutis, maybe even CMML with extramedullary manifestation PDC. So you have to know what the differential is and be able to order the appropriate test. In this case, CD123, 456. So I tell people think one, two, three, four, five, six. That's not specific for the disease, but it's sensitive. And then I want folks to add in these specific markers, TCL1, TCF4, CD303. The second aspect is that you need to be thinking about the disease brilliantly, as you said. So if you're not thinking about it, you're not gonna necessarily order these special stains and tests. So education, awareness, programs such as this, hemonc, board education, pathology, dermatology, right? This is a disease that involves the skin and pathology. So it's actually a little bit broader than our usual clinical hemonc fields. And then finally, the WHO has been fantastic about trying to reflect this. If you look at each of the revisions, and as you well know, um, especially when you were at U of Chicago, with some of your pathologists being relieved of these, is that the revisions are very helpful for pathologists and other folks making the diagnosis. Okay, now it's under myeloid. Now it's under its own category. We need to check these tests. So I think you're seeing all of that happen, but even at an academic center, it is still difficult to make this diagnosis. You have to separate it from AML, leukemia, cutis, and others. Finally, I think the last point you made is so huge, which is um, unless you are keeping up with the literature, you're not gonna know about these rare diseases. Again, I'm gonna use this Vexus syndrome, which is something you and I have been following. This was New England Journal about a year ago, actually exactly a year ago, December last year. You know, BPDCN, Vexus syndrome, they've been there. Now we're just giving names to these diseases. We're giving them a face, a diagnostic pathway. And you're right, when you have a New England Journal or a drug approval, as we're fortunate to have in BPDCN, it should put the education and awareness uh, at a premium, but that usually takes five to 10 years, doesn't it, for a new or newer entity? So I, I guess that's my take-home point for that question. So Naveen, I want to I wanna finish a little bit with uh, some advices that you would give to uh, listeners, maybe mainly trainees. And, um, you know, I don't know, uh, I, I'm not going to consider you junior faculty no more. You're too old for that. And you're too, <laughs> you're too accomplished for that. Old in a sense. <laughs> Old in a sense, not age, but old in the uh, accomplishments you've done, obviously. But, uh, you know, for folks who are entering the field and mm -hmm. uh, students, fellows, or, you know, junior faculty who may be interested in some of these, I don't know, like, I mean, it's hard for me to believe you would be interested with it immediately, but things right. evolve. So I guess when you take your career and put it to perspective, what advice do you give to trainees and junior faculty as they embark into an academic journey, which is different mm. in terms of the scope and the goal than a community oncology journey? Wow, you asked the best questions. And, and even after this interview and program, I'm gonna be thinking for the next few weeks about how lovely this discussion was. I, I think this is the right thing to ask. I think 
I have some serious things uh, to say out there because, you know, with this pandemic and the change in the work-life environment for many of us, we've had time to either electively or, you know, uh, know, be forced into thinking about these questions. My advice would be this to all the trainees out there who are looking to be um, academic investigators. And of course, I should also let the listeners know, you know, I haven't been in the lab for a long time. So I'm a clinical trial investigator, medical educator, physician. I don't know, three or four things come to mind. Number one is to find your passion area and to not be afraid to pursue it, even though it's quote unquote, not on the main course. Obviously in this hour, we've talked about my path, but there are very similar paths that people can take. And it's not uncommon to hear someone say, oh, you're throwing your career away by doing that. So follow your passion in the sense of if there's a new area or an emerging area and you actually are interested yourself, not because someone told you or assigned you to it, maybe you're driven as I was through patient care outcomes to to learn more, whatever it is. So I would say follow that, even though it may not be on the main pathway, but then but then number two is to become an expert in it. Becoming an expert, I found, is this combination of daily drive, plus I would say writing, uh, writing endlessly about your topic and submitting to anywhere you can, not just abstracts. Abstracts are good, but manuscripts, reviews, papers, case reports. And then three, be the best collaborator you can be. Somebody has a clinical trial in your area. Yes, I would love to participate. Someone has a patient that they need help with. Yes, I would love to weigh in. So I think not only finding your passion, but putting in the hours, right, the 10,000 hours uh, to, to become an expert in something. Then number three, I think this is very important, is find great mentors and be a great mentor yourself. So oftentimes that, you're right, I'm at that point in my career now, and you're making me reflect on this, which is I've had these great mentors, some of which I've named you know, by name here, And now I'm at the point as I'm talking to you where I'm starting to mentor the next generation. And that fluid process, I would argue, is not only a great thing to do, but it's a sacred necessity part of our field, which is the see one, do one, teach one philosophy. By reading, writing, learning, become an expert. Now then, I believe, in my opinion, you're obligated to to do that, to teach the next generation. And you know that I believe in medical education a number of ways. So one way you and I are able to do it uh, with our followers uh, that we've developed over time is through social media. So Twitter, programs such as this, which are important to get the message out there, and then writing, writing, writing. Whether it's an op-ed, as you mentioned, you've written some beautiful ones over the years, review articles. That's where the patient referrals come from. That's where the invitations come from. So then, And then that starts to snowball and avalanche. So I would say that's kind of my advice but it doesn't always have to be that you have to follow your mentor's exact path, but you should find your own path, become an expert in it, stick to it, and then start to mentor the next generation. I think, Shadi, I think that's what's worked for me, and I think that may work for a lot of folks out there. You know, I appreciate that, Naveen. I also appreciate truly the fact that you mentioned mentors by name. I think mm. it's really, really, really nice, and I think there are mentors that definitely have an impact on someone's career. Um, mm. And I think, you know, when you sit back and reflect, you can, you realize that your career is shaped by many people you meet, right? But there are always right. like two or three people that you know, they've done really something amazing. And, and, and I know Hago personally, and he's really mm-hmm. an amazing, amazing guy. Um, the other thing I would add, and I wonder what you mentioned, I do mention you, you I do um, 
I also appreciate you mentioned social media and so on. But the one, one thing I would say that this pandemic has taught me, because we were able to do a lot of things virtually, mm. by Zoom and so on, I think there's an opportunity for virtual mentoring. Mm. And I think that oftentimes, for example, you're at MD Anderson, you probably are going to mentor residents and fellows at MD Anderson who are going to come to you and say, you know, give me a project, can I be involved and so on. But, you know, you may get an email or a text or a tweet from somebody who otherwise have never actually met a student, a fellow, a resident that is really looking for something to do. They, they have the drive, but maybe they don't have the resources that, that others have. And I've made an effort to respond to all of these. Um, wow. Sometimes I don't have much to add, but I'll, mm. I'll respond. But I really think there's an opportunity for us to do virtual mentoring to people that awesome. they may reach out. So I presume, do you get a lot of these? I mean, you're very active on social media. Do you get people yeah. who are not at MD Anderson, maybe at different institution, not as well resourced? They're trying to, they're seeking uh, projects with you and research ideas. Yeah, I love I love that you brought this up. It's such an important thing. And I think you and I and, and Ruben were talking about this when we met recently at the ASH meeting. Ruben Mesa has been exactly that for me. We've never been at the same institution. And yet we've been linked through the ASH CRTI, which I should give yeah. a shout out to. It's exactly what you said. They, they sort of invented virtual or remote mentoring way before you know, we were doing it uh, in this pandemic. What Ruben Mesa has done for me is what I would call friendtorship. You know, it starts out as the classic mentor-mentee. Hey, I have this review article. Can you write this for me? Um, can you work with me on this? Sure. And then, then it evolves over time as you become colleagues to let's do this clinical trial together. Let's host this conference together as Ruben and I are doing now. Now we've become friends. So this friendship model, as I call it, I think is one of the key sustaining aspects, particularly during this pandemic time. It's kind of a non-threatening, non-intimidating way to have someone who's senior to you and who's been through the, through the process and say, hey, what do you think about this? I got this invitation, write this, or hey, you wanna do this together? So I think that's key. Now for me, as you're, you're right, I'm, I am starting to get those messages. It's been very gratifying. You're right, Twitter, for both of us, people DM us, direct message, and it's been one of the most um, kind of unexpected joys, I guess I should say, of this difficult time for us these last two years in the pandemic. I really um, cherish that. And I think anyone who knows me knows that because I am one of these pay it forward kind of people. So yes, if you're a student out there, trainee, interested in rare disease leadership, you know, reach out to, to folks like you and me because you never know where that's gonna go. You never know. It may lead to a review article. It may re lead to a, a job interview or it may lead to a lifelong friendship or collaboration. And, and as you and I call it, you can meet on Twitter uh, first and then IRL, as the kids say, in real life, okay? In real I like, life. I like this friendship. I like friendship. I like that. I like that. Look, Naveen, this has been really such a pleasurable hour. I can't wait to air this. <clears throat> Lots of nuggets in, in, in this conversation. Any last uh, thing, any final words you'd like to say to uh, viewers or listeners? Because you are going to be on the YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Oh, wow. So it's good you're wearing your tie. <laughs> and, and I should you say, know, this is my Osler tie. You, by, the, by the time this airs, you'll get a very amazing, wonderful T-shirt. Oh, wonderful. And you know that I'm, I'm a big fan of yours and, and that T-shirt. No, I think the biggest message, and you said it kind of earlier, what I've reflected on the pandemic is 
it's not enough for us as scientists, researchers, and experts to only do our research in silos and to write our review papers and manuscripts and then to call it a day. I think what the pandemic has taught us and what we have seen together is that research and scientific exchange of ideas, particularly in these rare of the rarest diseases, must go on. They must continue in some way, somehow, virtual, remote, online, if it's safe to do it in conferences, but it must be a, a concerted shared effort. Folks like you and me who understand the traditional media and now the newer media, because I'm telling you, if we allow ourselves to not continue on with the research, not continue on with the science in these rare diseases, then people will be affected by that. I'm so proud of my group and the community. We've somehow been able to continue clinical trials, remote consenting, IRBs, FDA, everyone figuring out new ways, Shadi, to be able to keep clinical trials moving, drug approvals. And I'm telling you that this is going to be one of the great uh, stories and impacts of the pandemic that we were able to continue most, the majority of our rare disease research, despite difficult times. And for that, I want people to know that there's a lot of hope, even with tough times. Well, Naveen, thank you. Although you you keep lumping me in with you and I, and I think uh, you, you're you way more popular. <laughs> you are way more prolific on social media. So I appreciate <laughs> you putting me in that category. I don't think I deserve to be in that category, but uh, I appreciate uh, the gesture. Uh, the gesture. Well, thank you so much for coming on Health. Thank you, my friend. Thank you so much. All the best to you. This was really a wonderful interview with Dr. Naveen Pimaraju. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation with him, and I hope you did as well. I hope you enjoyed learning about his career path, his passion, how he ended up uh, publishing and being an integral uh, part of uh, treating a very rare or ultra-rare disease. So it's really uh, wonderful to have him on. And I'm grateful for the time and the uh, really uh, candor that he provided. So before I let you go, uh, I have to plug the show again. Make sure you find Healthcare Unfiltered on any podcast outlet. Make sure you check the YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Do not forget to um, subscribe, rate, and like the show if you like it, of course. You can always direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. You can also reach me on the website, shadinabhan.com, or you can send me an email to shadinabhan00 at outlook.com. Always let me know what I'm doing, how I'm doing it, and whether I need to modify, change, or make any adjustments. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by uh, Sir William Osler. You know, you heard that Dr. Baraju went to Hopkins. He's an Oslerian, he said. So this is one of my favorite Osler quotes. The good physician treats the disease. The great physician treats the patient who has the disease. Until next time, take care.